welcome to another episode of Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. I'm Joe Schumacher, and I'm joined uh, by Jeremy Chang. Jeremy, how's it going? Pretty good, Joe. Um, so we've got a, a really interesting uh, show uh, for the folks at home today. Um, we've talked about vision a lot on the program. We've had a bunch of guests, including uh, Michael Stryker, Chris Neal. Judith Hirsch, um, David Furster. Lots of people. So many people. Andreas Tolius. Yeah. People studying, you know, all sorts of different properties of uh, the visual system. Um, today's guest um, approaches vision from a, a completely um, advanced, I would say, perspective where uh, rather than just understanding how the, you know, visual cortex represents visual features in the world, uh, she's asking what it's doing in the service of behavior. So an animal out in the world using visual signals to, to, to move around in its environment or search for food or whatever it's using vision in a way that, um, is guiding, uh, its behavior from moment to moment. Um, and I think what, what's really interesting about this conversation that we're about to have is it, it, it highlights how limited we are in our thinking if we keep going about the same experimental approaches and, how you know new uh, excitement about discovering things from new creative angles can really drive our progress. Um, what else should people know going into this episode? We'll talk a little bit about what drew most of us, I guess, to to research this this sort of curiosity driven um, job that is kind of very different than most. And yeah, I mean, we go through the sort of uh, a classic case of a career arc um, with its own sort of uh, twists and turns. And um, I don't know, it's a great conversation. Um, let's take a listen. So Jeremy, you and I um, spend a lot of our time thinking about the visual system, um, questions about development or, you know, the different computations that circuits do or experience related changes in visual cortex, for instance. We've talked about vision um, on the podcast a lot, um, but we have a guest with us today who um, has a, a, a pretty um, pioneering perspective on the, the role of visual cortex in our, our daily lives, in the lives of animals, and how it governs their behavior. Um, uh, Dr. Natalie Rochefort uh, is here from the Center for Discovery Brain Sciences at uh, the University of Edinburgh. She's Chancellor's Fellow and the Sir Henry Dale Fellow. And uh, Dr. Rochefort, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so before we get into some of the nuts and bolts of uh, some of the really cool work that you and your lab have been working on, um, you have a, a, a strong history in visual sciences, visual neuroscience, doing a, a lot of different things from... Um, uh, development of functional properties of visual cortex to the organization of different projection patterns. Um, what is it that has sort of drawn you to study the visual system and stay in the visual system and, and try out all these different things over your career? Yes. So when did it start? Um, it's mainly, it started at the PhD level, I guess. So I was interested in, in neuroscience for a long time. Um, did a master actually first in the history of uh, science. And my thesis was on color vision. 
Um, so the first master, master I did was epistemology and history of science. And we had to pick up a subject to make our main uh, thesis. And this was, yeah, I took uh, color perception and color vision. And writing this thesis, I, I had to, to read a lot about the work that had been done um, about color perception. And, and in this essay was not only the, the experimental work, but also all the more philosophical aspect of what was behind. And that really triggered my, my interest. Um, at the same time, I was working as a journalist for the French version of the Scientific American. And I was interviewing, as you are doing now, uh, mathematicians, actually, uh, for a special issue about a group of mathematicians. And uh, doing this job, I realized that I'd rather be them than, than me, <laughs> interviewing them. And I decided that, yes, that was something I thought for a long time, but never really uh, decided or embraced on that I wanted to be a researcher. And that, that was something I... That was driving me. So in order to do that, I needed funding. And in order to get the funding, I first needed to redo a master this time in neuroscience. So I did a master in neuroscience and had to compete for funding. You will see where it's going to vision. Um, because at that time it was, and it's still, by the way, the, the, there was a very limited uh, number of grants for PhD funding. And I had two different uh, variables had to match uh, the host lab, the type of funding, etc. And well, um, and it was a competition, so based on, on the results. So at the end of the master, um, I was uh, I received information that there was this new program, the European program, uh, where there was funding, and that uh, if I wanted to apply, then. Uh, with and found a, a lab uh, within this program, then um, that would be a way to get funding. So I started to find the lab and when I was there, the combination of lab was a vision lab, uh, one uh, in the Collège de France in Paris and one at the Ruhr Universität Bochum. Um, and there was a clear collaboration already uh, established or a will to establish this collaboration around the technique that was the optical imaging of intrinsic signals at that time in cats. So, so I was driven by the visual field, but there was also an opportunity for the funding. So that's so when like, I started. Sort of like how just circumstances work out sort of. Yes, exactly. Shapes your career. I think that. And you, it sounded like you're just more drawn, drawn to research in general. So, yes. I mean, I think most of us, as we're growing up, aren't going, I want to be a research scientist. I want to study something in depth. Mm -hmm. What was it about, uh, I guess, interacting with those mathematicians and psychologists that really drew you into yeah, research? This was much before. It's just that very early on, I think already at 10, 11 years old, I, I have memories of the first thing I wanted to become an astrophysicist, actually. So it was about the stars and the universe and I... I even went for a camp, a space camp. I was selected as a young uh, secondary school student to train in the uh, space camp yeah, where the astronauts are training. Anyway, um, during the summer. I, so this, I think, went quite long time to, to make sense of the universe, the, 
the world around me, try to in a rational way. I think this has roots very early. <laughs> then to embrace the fact that I would be a scientist, it took more time. And I think there are many factors and a lot are environmental <laughs> in the sense that I was not from a family of scientists. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that, but I was very encouraged. I mean, it's not that I was blocked, but I, I don't, I think there was a lot of influence that, that didn't give me the image of myself of a scientist, maybe something like this, despite the results in, in, in school or in that I was very good at math, physics, biology. And at the end of high school, basically uh, asking around what I would, would do. Uh, I, in high school, I studied math, option math. So it was really very math driven. Um, and despite that, the, the advice I, I had when I was expressing what I wanted to do, which was mainly research, uh, was to do biology or medicine. And I think there is a strong uh, pressure of society to, to, or at least the environment I was in, to see more uh, a girl or a woman uh, doing science. A more proper way would be medicine. Uh, more than mathematics or physics or astrophysics. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and again, it was is? not a, a conscious, I mean, if you had asked me at that time, I would have told you I was totally free of my own choices. But retrospectively, it's what I have seen that there was some aspects that were more pushed or, or um, accepted. Yeah, than others, accepted than yeah. others. So that's why I went for biology. Uh, at that time I was also doing a lot of dance, but both as a performer and I studied choreography. So, and it's, it also matches in the, in research, in the sense of this, uh, um, this way of, of looking for new things, of, of creating things. Um, I found that also in, in the dance, in dancing. <laughs> so yes. Then, okay, in, at the university, I had teachers that were researchers and, and this could grow in me. Um, inside me, there were research projects. Um, I had different opportunities. At the third year, I went to New York in Eric Kendall's lab. I totally loved this experience. Um, and were you working yeah. with sea slugs? No, I was working with um, mice, so it was a water maze task, mm. and I had to test the memory of mice, and um, we found a very strong deficit um, until we realized that this given mutation of a protein that was supposed to be involved, well, that was involved in LTP, or that, uh, actually these mice were blind. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, wow, that's well, <laughs> so just yeah. to back up one second, um, you were mentioning that, and you know, you, your, your sort of journalistic job was talking to mathematicians. You're really yeah. strong in math. You're interested in physics. These are sort of considered like, I mean, I don't know if this is exactly what you're getting at, but like, these are sort of like the base level sort of like fundamental sciences. And then if you sort of look at a spectrum from that to say psychology, biology sort of right somewhere in the middle. What do you think it was about like biology and medicine, like the social pressure was to move in that direction versus. Yeah, because indeed physics. there is a perception it's softer, I guess, um, about care, about the body. Hmm. Um, and just maybe more role models or more image of 
women doing that, I guess. So as biologists, do we think that it's softer? (laughs) No, it's not what I meant. I meant the perception that also at that time, I I think things are changing, but uh, um, yeah, I guess that way. So then uh, we are experimentalists, at least what I'm doing. Um, Yeah. Do you find that uh, neuroscience sort of strikes a good balance between those two things? Because I, so I see physicists. True. I that's started true. out as an engineer, right? And I was definitely one of those ones that was like, oh, biology, squishy. <laughs> eh. Yeah. And sea slugs. And I think throughout my career, I have found that uh, as I got into neuroscience, it really does kind of strike this intermediate uh, position where you can take sort of those hard science uh, concepts and really apply them to like a biological system. Yes, true. Or from or 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 have an collect data, and this um, you have to deal with many constraints, experimental constraints, um, and then extract from this data um, some concepts that or or um, try to conceptualize from from this this data set. Um, yes, I've, I this I like the diversity, the practical diversity of of this uh, field in neuroscience specifically, because indeed you deal with really hardcore physics or uh, optics, if you use microscopy, um, biology with your biological question, you have uh, also um, many aspects. uh, In in data analysis, then I collaborate a lot with computational neuroscientists. Um, Now there is the whole machine learning field and and I very much like this diversity. Yes. So flash forward, um, you're now running a lab, and <laughs> you have uh, you know this whole research program, still investing in in, in vision science. You know, one thing that Jer- Jeremy and I have talked about is uh, when you look at vision and its long history. Um, in the textbook version of the visual system, it seems like it's figured out, like that it's sort of built for this sort of base level computation. Um, I'm sort of using Jeremy's words um, right now, but um, a lot of what you're doing is sort of challenging this notion. So what do you see as sort of like the the focus of your lab right now? And, and um, where do you see yourself moving re- in research wise? Okay. So right now, in the lab, we are using the primary visual cortex of mice uh, as a model system of a cortical circuit integrating visual inputs, but also contextual inputs. And us, as several labs, have published in the relatively recent years um, the evidence showing that these contextual inputs have a major um, modulatory effect in the integration of visual inputs. So moving forward, (laughs) there are several projects, but um, we see more and more that in awake behaving animals, these contextual signals um, can be found in different areas in the brain. So, and we want to understand what would be the different timing when these different areas are recruited um, during an active le- learning of a task, uh, what are these contextual inputs uh, that influence this activity, whether they are internal, linked to... Um, so we studied the motor activity, the arousal, 
uh, we are now also moving towards more uh, metabolic changes and how it could influence our perceptions, um, as well as the overall direction is the influence of experience and what, how different types of experience, whether we are looking at passively at a stimulus or at a visual scene, if we see this same stimuli, but that were previously associated with fear or with a reward, how the actual representation of the stimulus is changed in the visual cortex. And this is kind of a departure from the way people have traditionally thought of visual cortex, right? Like, I think there, there's very, a very strong feeling that there's mm -hmm. specializations within the brain and, and the, each area kind of does its own thing. And yeah. you're, what, you're, what you're suggesting is that actually that's not the case, that there are these other signals from other regions that are coming into this region that we traditionally think of as a visual center. Yes. Well, there is a big history in heritage also. And actually, it's <laughs> going back to the bi my biography. It's kind of following that because when I did my PhD, I studied cats. So visual responses in primary visual cortex in cats in anesthetized and paralyzed animals. So these were animals anesthetized and paralyzed, placed in front of a screen, and you would correlate uh, activity of neurons in the primary visual cortex with the stimuli you were uh, presenting. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, the identity of these neurons would be defined by their response to visual stimuli. And in this experimental design, what else would you expect? So this primary visual cortex was seen as a feature detector. Um, and again, what else could it do since the animal was paralyzed, anesthetized, mm -hmm. and so all these other contextual inputs would not um, be active, right? Right. So, like then, yeah, like, like a mouse, you know, running. You'll see running-related signals in in primary visual cortex. Indeed. If you have an anesthetized animal, you'd never you would be never able to see, see it. Yeah. Yes. The same for memory signals, let's say, as a broad term. Uh, if the animal is anesthetized and paralyzed, you What's can show a very relevant stimulus for this animal, maybe a mouse or anything. The memory centers would, would not be uh, giving input to, to, to the primary visual cortex. Right. Um, then, uh, even after my PhD, I, I did uh, a postdoc still staying in the visual cortex, but this time in mice. Who were, that were also anesthetized. So again, with the same idea that we were investigating neuronal responses to visual stimuli um, and really trying to seeing the, the visual cortex conceptually as a feature detector and trying to understand how these neuronal populations, these neurons encode the visual scene. So re really a representation theory or, uh, yeah. Then... In 2010, I think there was the paper of the group of Neil and Stryker who showed that indeed there were neuronal responses to locomotion. And yeah, I think we've had both Neil and Stryker, Stryker on yeah. the podcast. Uh, before. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> and this had a big impact in the field because it started to show, oh, actually these V1 neurons are doing something else than responding to visual stimuli. Locomotion is one of them. Um, and I think it opened a wide field of, of uh, research and experiments showing that actually they don't, they are not only responding to locomotion, but also to reward, timing of a reward, over, moda mod uh, over sensory modalities. Um, 
And also these responses to visual stimuli will be modulated by experience. Again, the same stimulus that had previously been associated with fear or with a reward, the actual response of neurons to this stimulus would be different depending on these different experiences. So, so conceptually, this is, this is almost a, a step further than what Neil and Stryker were saying, where they were arguing that locomotion modulates the responses, but you're suggesting that there's that there are actually responses that are not even related to the visual scene per se yes. that, are, that are occurring. Yes, there are non-visual non-visual responses in the primary visual cortex. So if the animal is running in the dark, you will have um, neurons tuned to the speed of the animal, even in darkness when there is no visual stimulus. Uh, you have neurons responding to a reward. These are also non-sensory responses. Um, yeah, and you've shown, I mean, one, one of the, the figures I've seen from you really nicely shows that the role of experience can actually change the reward representations in visual cortex. You, you showed a, a plot that is very reminiscent of like hippocampal play cells almost, like the, the spatial location yeah. of a reward that an animal's receiving is also sort of encoded. Yes, so that was um, one recent paper from, from the lab where we used virtual reality um, in head fix mice uh, that have to run through a virtual environment and leak, get a reward at a given location in this environment that was indicated by a visual cue. And we saw that during the learning of this task, when we were monitoring the activity of neurons, that the neurons in, in, in V1, in the primary visual uh, cortex, uh, would change their activity um, quite strongly during this process of learning. And we wanted to characterize these neurons, especially um, these many neurons that were active at the location of the reward. And so we did different controls to show whether this response was due to the reward itself, to the spatial location of the reward, and how the animal would estimate this distance either based on visual cues or based on self-motion inputs. And what we show with these different controls is that when the visual cue was there to locate the location of this reward, the animal would base his behavior mainly on this visual cue and neurons in the visual cortex, some neurons would specifically respond to this, um, to this visual cue associated with the reward. But when we remove this visual cue, we also realized that the animal could uh, estimate this distance based on self-motion uh, information and that neurons in the visual cortex would also respond to this spatial location of the reward independently of visual inputs, of visual stimuli. So, so the, this, in this task, the mouse is running and it gets to a point where it's getting rewarded. Uh, why would visual cortex need to know where this reward is? What is, what is the advantage that conveys to the mouse? Um, okay, so one thing to remember is that these, these mice are highly water deprived. The only way for them to get the, well, they are water restricted. The one way to have water is to perform this task and they don't have much in their life also apart from this training. So the reward is very So salient. the reward is very salient and very important. Mm -hmm. So you would think that a lot of energy in, in the brain would be dedicated to encode precisely how to get this reward, 
how to get this water. And so my, my way of, of seeing, of interpreting uh, our data is that the, this reward was associated with the visual cue. So the visual cue is clearly important and will be, um, will uh, get a high representation in the cortex. But also similarly, this reward was also systematically shown at the same location. So this spatial information would also be very relevant. So it's very predictable. And very predictable. And that basically what the cortex would do is to, to combine this contextual information relevant for the behavior to enhance um, and, and, and have a more accurate uh, estimation of the location of, of this reward by combining visual inputs, spatial inputs, if there had been an auditory signal, it could have been that the auditory signal would also be uh, integrated again to enhance the, the, the precision uh, and the contextualization of this reward. So we only have a, a, a minute or so left, um, time, time flies, but, um, you know, given, you know, the sort of arc of your career where you've gone from, you know, studying the passive anesthetized properties of visual cortex to visual cortex of behaving animals and, uh, the, the more nuanced perspective of all the different computations that could be going on in visual cortex. Um, what do you sort of see as the future of visual cortex and, and, what is what is it that allows us to keep asking new questions about, you know, a, you know, seemingly well covered territory? Well, I think there is a lot to be done uh, in 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 awake animals learning tasks, basically, and to understand how um, how cortical subcortical uh, information is integrated towards a given motor output. Uh, these qu simple questions of how inputs are integrated to generate a specific output relevant for behavior is still very largely unknown and a mystery. And the boom of all the techniques that that uh, are now uh, really um, can be used in, in, in mice, in, in particular, the combination of genetic tools, of imaging tools, of electrophysiology, computational approaches, uh, theory, and, and also the, the theory. Like, it's basically yeah. a very exciting time to be a, a neuroscientist in this field, I think, because of the, the boom and the combination of all the tools that are now available, which were not in the past. So we now can use genetic tools in mice, um, combine them with imaging tools, electrophysiology, manipulating the activity, uh, have computational approaches. Um, and And this whole combination really triggers uh, an explosion a bit of, of, uh, of studies, but I, I see it in a very positive way because I think, again, it's, it's exciting to see a field moving uh, at this exponential uh, rate. And we are able now to ask um, even more interesting questions in the sense, maybe closer to the behavior, closer to the physiological conditions and get closer and closer to understand how the brain integrates sensor inputs to generate a motor output. Cool. Yeah. Well, Dr. Rochefort, thank you so much for joining us today. And it's been a pleasure and um, best of luck on, on all your great research. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
Okay, so that's our show for today. Thank you to Dr. Rochefort for sitting down and talking to us about her career and uh, the, the really cool research going on in her lab. Um, I don't know, Jeremy, what do you think? It seems like in terms of the, the story of vision vis-a-vis this podcast, it's a really interesting step that, that the field is going in. I mean, we've talked to people looking at, you know, intrinsic cell properties in visual cortex. We've talked to people looking at the organization of visual circuits. We've talked to people looking at, well, we've talked to, as she mentioned, Neil and Stryker, both of them about, you know, uh, arousal-related signals and V1 and motor-related signals. Uh, I don't know, this seems like a nice, you know, narrative move forward for us as a podcast. Yeah, I think it really kind of highlights how as much as we know about the brain, there's always that much more that we can learn, right? The, this idea that um, because of the way we've, uh, people have been doing experiments that all of these signals from the behavioral states of the animals are completely being ignored. I think uh, as a visual neuroscientist, it makes me glad that I'll have a job for the years to come. Yeah. I mean, it, it also makes me feel a little less crazy because sometimes when you're recording from visual cortex, especially if you're not using a stimulus that's like, you know, really driving like a moving grading or something like that. And maybe I'm getting into the minutia of how you do visual experiments, but um, there are a lot of cells that just aren't responding to stuff. And you are just like, am I in visual cortex? What do I do with these cells? Like, it actually makes me feel a lot better that um, there's something else going on there that I'm just simply not, you know, tapping into. So um, it's a sanity check for me that to know that a lot of these cells probably just aren't representing whatever whatever visual feature we're trying to, to study. Um, anyway, so check us out on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter. We're at NeuroPodcast. Um, Jeremy, what's your Twitter? JT Chang. Okay, I'm, I'm at JW Science. Um, Misha is at Salad Zombie. He's not here today. Oh, but interesting uh, connection to this episode. Misha's on paternity leave right now. Uh, and our guest today is actually married to somebody that went to uh, graduate school with Misha. So Misha knows everyone. It's a small world. Um, anyway, um, talk to you later. This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at NeuroPodcast. 